Good morning. It's my pleasure to be with you this morning. Happy New Year to you. Today I'm going to be uh, starting off a new preaching series through the book of Philippians. It's something that we're going to be going through as a church over the course of this next term and I'm really excited and eager to be doing this. Philippians is a fantastic book in the New Testament and I really want to encourage you to take some time to read it. It's only four chapters long, it's quite short, you could read it easily in one sitting and I hope that it will be a book of the Bible that you read many many times over the next couple of months as we preach through it uh, Sunday by Sunday. Why do we choose the book of Philippians? Well we felt as a leadership team that having spent much of last year looking at the Sermon on the Mount and learning from Jesus's words directly uh, that we thought it would be good to have some teaching from the New Testament into us as a local church and we felt that one of Paul's letters to one of his churches would be a very relevant thing for us to go through and as we looked and studied a bit more deeper into Philippians we just found that it was a book that is very relevant we believe to the time that we're in at the moment. It's a book that was written to a young church by Paul the apostle who founded it. We are a relatively young church. Uh, we were only established almost exactly a year ago. Elders were appointed and we went from becoming a site of Church Central to a church in our own right. So we're a relatively young church. Paul wrote the book from prison. He was imprisoned either in Rome or Ephesus and you know that's something that, 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 that rings out in the book. His longing to see the church but the fact that he's forcibly uh, stopped from doing that. And of course, all of us are still living with this daily, weekly uh, thing of not being able to see one another and not being able to meet together in the way that we would so love to be able to do. So there's something about being forcibly separated from one another that resonates and rings true. There's also a lot about suffering in the book of Philippians and joy in suffering in particular. This young church was being persecuted for their faith. They were going through different trials and different sufferings. And, you know, while perhaps we're not experiencing persecution in the same way, we certainly are going through a challenging time that is going on and on into 2021. And so we just feel that this book, which Paul is a very personal letter, um, there's a lot in there about his own example, the example of his life. This was a church that he loved dearly, had a good relationship with. And so he shares very openly about his own life and his own example. And we can learn so much from that. We've entitled the series Jesus Our Joy because there is so many references to joy uh, and to rejoicing and looking forward to coming on to those. I'm looking forward to learning more about what it means to rejoice. But also we could have called it Jesus Our Joy in Suffering because there are many references not only to Paul's own imprisonment but to the suffering that the church is undergoing and just feel that as we continue to go through this difficult time, that there is much we can learn about rejoicing in suffering. And for many of us, pandemic aside, as you know, this is a reality in our lives. There are difficulties and sufferings that many of us are going through. And I just believe that God has so much to teach us from this book and from this example of Paul and this church to how to learn to rejoice even in the midst of sufferings. The story of the Philippian church is a very exciting one. You can read it in Acts chapter 16. 
The context is basically that Paul uh, and Silas were sent out from their base in northern Syria, Antioch. They were sent to take the gospel to new people. Uh, Paul, as you know, his heart beat with the desire to share the gospel of Jesus, the good news about Jesus, with people that didn't already know about him, and particularly those from a non-Jewish background. That was who Paul felt called to. And so we see in his second missionary journey that he goes across southern Turkey and visits the churches that he'd already founded and encourages them afresh. And then he wants to go into northern Turkey, but the Holy Spirit leads them more over towards the northeastern corner of Turkey and he finds himself in this place Troas this port and he's wondering where are we going to go and that night he has a vision of a man of Macedonia calling him come and help us so the next day they board a boat and they go across to Macedonia which is modern day northern Greece and they find themselves in the town of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony it was a, a influential city that was on an important trade route there were many Roman veterans um, who had been soldiers and after their service they settled there. So it was a real Roman place. It was a real place that was uh, devoted to the empire, devoted to the emperor. There weren't many Jewish people there. There was no synagogue. There weren't many Christians. There weren't any Christians there when Paul and Silas arrived. And the story is told that they go in Acts 16, they go down to the river to look for a place of prayer and they find these women there praying. And, and Paul speaks and shares the gospel. And this woman called Lydia, who is a rich uh, merchant, she responds to the gospel and invites them back to her household. And they all get baptised and the church is born. We then see that uh, Paul casts a demon out of a servant girl who's been prophesying. And as a result, her owners are really angry. They've lost their livelihood because she would fortune tell for them. And so they take Paul and Silas in prison. And the moment that I love in the story in Acts is this moment where Paul and Silas in chains on the wall of the prison at midnight are singing and worshipping to God. And that is almost like the moment that it, it encapsulates the birth of the church in Philippi. Joy in the midst of suffering. They're in chains. They don't know what's going to happen to them and they're singing. And then what we see is a great earthquake comes and their chains are released. And the jailer who thinks he's failed in his job is about to kill himself. And they say, stop, don't do it. And then he says, brothers, what must I do to be saved? And they tell him the gospel. And that night, in the middle of the night, he takes them back to his house, wakes up his family, cooks a meal. They're all baptised. And there we go. The, the, the church is fully born in Philippi. The next day, Paul and Silas have to leave. And so it's, a, it's an explosive and, a, and an amazing, miraculous start to the life of the church. Uh, but then it's 10 years or so later when Paul is in prison, either in Rome or Ephesus, where he is writing this letter to the church, wanting to encourage them, wanting to thank them for a financial gift that they've given, but also wanting to encourage them to stand firm and to be joyful in the midst of difficulties. So let's read the first two verses. All I'm going to do today is really give you this background on the book and just preach from the first two verses. So let's read. It says, this letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to all of God's people, holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus. 
including the church leaders and deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So although it says it's from Paul and Timothy, most scholars agree that Paul would have been the one who mainly wrote the letter. Perhaps he mentions Timothy because later in chapter 2 we learn he wants to send Timothy to the church, so he wants to introduce them uh, to Timothy. I'm just going to draw out here the three titles that are used to describe three different groups of people, and we're just going to spend a few minutes on each of these this morning. The first title is Church Leaders and Deacons. The second is God's Holy People. And the third is this idea of slaves of Christ Jesus. So Paul refers to these three groups of people in his introduction. So firstly, let's consider what he means when he talks about the church leaders or the church elders and deacons. Clearly the letter is addressed to the whole church. So a question that arises is why does he mention the church leaders and deacons? Why does he uh, single them out for special mention? Does it mean that they are in some way more important than the rest of the saints? Absolutely not. As we will go on to say, it's pretty awesome being a saint, being a holy one, belonging to Jesus, as we'll see in a moment. You can't get much better status than that. And so the church leaders and deacons are simply believers who have a role in the church. But it's believed they may have been given special inclusion in this introduction because of their role in the church in administering the financial gift that had been sent to Paul through Epaphroditus. And it could be that Paul wished to honour their role in that. Well look, it's just important to take this moment to spend a couple of minutes on considering the role of elders and deacons in the church. While they are of no greater worth or greater status than any other believer, absolutely not, they do however have a frontline role through the power of the Holy Spirit, in building the church of Jesus and in seeing the kingdom of God advance. They're very important people in the church. And you're well aware that we have elders, um, of which I have the privilege of being one, to govern our church. And I know, and I just want to thank you on behalf of the eldership team of Church Central West for your faithfulness over the past year as a church, that you're not a difficult church to lead in the sense that... um, you have been so responsive to our lead, you've been so encouraging, you've been so prayerful over a really difficult time and we just really appreciate that and we just love you um, and we are devoted to you as an eldership team and it's such a privilege, I speak on behalf of all of us, to, to lead this church. You may wonder, well that makes sense, I understand about elders, but, but what about deacons? Do we have them in our church? And if so, who are they? a very good question. Well the New Testament teaches that deacons should be tried and tested in the same way that elders are and should be exemplary believers and live godly lives. In terms of the role that they fulfill it's simply those that take responsibility for a particular area of church life which is delegated to them from the elders. The word deacon simply means servant so it's someone who takes on a role of delegated Uh, leadership from the elders. So perhaps now you're thinking maybe we do have deacons because there are people that do those kind of roles in the church. Well I just want to say we really believe in deacons in this church. It's a biblical office. It's, it's, It's something that we do affirm and believe in and there are people who are fulfilling these kinds of roles. 
but these have not been formally recognised as deacons. Why is that? Well, firstly, because the church is a dynamic thing. Uh, it's a dynamic body. Um, it's mobile. It's moving. The different roles and different parts are needed for different seasons. And sometimes deacon roles, deacon type roles change. I mean, for example, there were a number of people who had responsibility for making Sunday mornings run up until nine, ten months ago. And now all of a sudden that has changed and there are different people who have stepped up into different roles that have been needed during this pandemic season. So deacon roles can sometimes last perhaps a little bit short, shorter than elders roles. Secondly, also because we're a relational community um, where we're led by the elders and governed by the elders, these roles are often worked out relationally with the elders and then received relationally and by trust with the church. So almost these are things that happen perhaps a bit behind the scenes. And that's why we have people operating in deacon roles um, without having kind of a lot of fanfare made about the actual title. And that links to the third point. Thirdly, we don't want to create positions which are elevated above other forms of service in the church. And that's because we believe we're a body where every member has a part to play. That's really important. And no one role is really more important than others. But it is at moments like this where it's good to acknowledge that there are people leading and carrying responsibility in the church. And if that's you, I want to thank you so much for all that you do uh, on behalf of, of the whole church, really, in the service that you bring. Just the final thing to say on this is that we do intend to uh, recognise and, um, and, and appoint and sort of do more around deacons in the future, hopefully this year. Um, I don't want that to be a kind of Oh, oh, deacons, deacons, and sort of suddenly inflated above what it should be. But just, just feel that it's important to acknowledge people that are doing these roles. It's a biblical thing. Um, and so the best thing you can do is to pray for the elders and, and deacons and pray that God would develop more leaders as we grow, that he would develop more people to carry more responsibility so that we are a healthy church that's governed and led biblically. That's what we want to be, isn't it? just like the church in Philippi was. So that is simply just the first point, elders and deacons. The second group that Paul refers to is the holy people of God in Philippi who belong to Jesus Christ. To be holy means to be set apart. And the recipients of this letter are those that God sees differently from those around them. In all of this great city of Philippi, with all of these decorated veterans and other special people, it was the church. This, this motley group of different people, a jailer, you know, a, a female uh, business leader and all the others in between, who God sees as different. They were set apart by God to be special recipients of his lavish love. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart. Another word, of course, that translations use for this is, is, is simply the word saints. To the saints in Philippi, the word saint simply means holy one. One that has been made holy, one that has been set apart. Saint is not a special title given to uh, historic Christians who've passed certain tests and have done wonderful exploits. It is a title that the Bible gives to everyday Christians just like you and me. Those who have been set apart and made holy 
by the power of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who the gospel story, the good news, has impacted and changed and transformed, those are the people that are saints. This is the glory of the message of Jesus Christ that Paul was motivated to carry thousands of miles, is that it is for everyone and anyone. Eventually, Christians transformed the ancient world just by being Christians, by being saints, by being the church. And you know, for us, each of us have a story of how we became a saint. You know, there was a moment for each of us where, like Lydia, God opened our heart to the message. I'm sure there was a journey for each of us. Some of that was being brought up in a Christian home. Some of that might have been a more dramatic conversion in the same way that the Apostle Paul had or the Philippian jailer had. But the Lord opened our heart to the message. And we walked into this faith in which we are now living. And I tell you, there's nothing more glorious and wonderful than being called a saint. And let's remind ourselves daily of the glorious reality of that. Perhaps it's time to dust off your Freedom in Christ book. You know, it was this time last year that we were embarking on doing the Freedom in Christ course in life groups. And we, many of us benefited so much uh, from that teaching and a lot of that foundational stuff about who we are in Christ. And that was one of the main points I remember was we, we're saints. You know, we, we were sinners and we sometimes still sin. But we've been set free from sin and have been made into saints of God. Saints means that we are on the foundation of the grace of God. Our worth is solely based on his grace, on his love for us, on the fact that he's chosen us. It means that we're now represented and we're in union with, with Jesus Christ. It means that as he died on the cross, he died for us. And as he rose again, he rose again for us. You know, we died with him and we rose with him to new life. That's what it means to be a saint. It's the most beautiful thing. So if you're a Christian, if you're a member of our church, I want to encourage you, take hold of this daily. Thank God and praise God daily for who you are in Christ and live it out, feed on it and worship God for it. But the final phrase that Paul uses, the final group of people that he refers to here is in referring to himself and Timothy and he refers to them as slaves, slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, you may know this, but if you were a slave in the ancient world, that was your lot in life. That was your status. Okay, you weren't, um, it wasn't like one of these Disney stories where you had a dream and then one day you were set free and then you could go and pursue your dream. No, no, no. If you were a slave, you belonged to your master. You had no will of your own, but you just went by the will and word of the master. What the master said, you did. No questions asked. You were the property of your owner. You didn't have your own will. That was how things worked. And it was just part of the social strata of, uh, of, of, of ancient Rome, the Roman Empire. And so this is how Paul and Timothy refer to themselves when they're talking about their relationship to Jesus Christ. They see themselves as having been redeemed by Jesus from the bondage of sin, but then 
Having been redeemed, they then put themselves at the complete disposal of the master, just like slaves. Now, it might seem like there's a bit of a conflict here. You know, how can we be saints who've been set free and at the same time slaves? How can we be totally set free and given a new status by God's grace without having to earn it and be called slaves? Are we free or are we slaves? Well, Paul addresses this brilliantly in Romans chapter 6, verse 18, where he says, We have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Slaves to righteousness. Set free, become slaves. It's an incredible thing. And I think the reason why in our society, in our Western mindset, we have a problem with this is because we have misconception about what real freedom is. Our society is obsessed with freedom. We love the idea of freedom. But it's more like the American dream than what the Bible shows true freedom is. Our society's version of freedom is completely individualistic. It's all about the freedom to be who we want to be, to go where we want to go, to choose the life, to choose the identity that we want, and to fulfil the golden rule of our society, which is to be true to ourselves. This is why our fragile psyches have fallen apart in the last year, because we don't know how to deal with having our freedoms taken away by something like a global pandemic. Because we've conned ourselves into the belief that personal freedom is our basic human right and having it taken away then creates this existential crisis that we really feel powerless to change and we just all we can do is just say it's rubbish and we feel terrible about it. We, we feel like there's a sense of injustice about it. But we are not individuals in a vacuum. We live in a world with over 8 billion other people, right? We were created by God for relationship and for community. We were designed to relate to one another, to not just be a load of individuals buzzing around, but to be interconnected with one another. So this changes how we can see freedom, because if we're given freedom in this context, we instantly have a choice. And that choice is how will we use our freedom in relation to others. Will we use our freedom for selfish means? Or will we use our freedom to bless and serve others sacrificially? Bring God into the, the bargain and the stakes are raised even further. Will we live for ourselves and satisfy our own desires or will we live as slaves to God? This is what Paul and Timothy and Silas and the others, this is what they grasped and got hold of. And this is true worship, as it says in Romans 12. In view of God's mercy, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. In view of all the wonderful things that God has done in changing your life, in saving you, in giving you hope for the future, in giving you eternal life, in giving you peace and the presence of his Holy Spirit with you, so that you can face anything that happens and so that you can live a fruitful, godly life. In view of all of that, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, as a slave of God. As William Booth said, the greatness of a person's power is the measure of their surrender. Listen, Christian, it is good to see yourself as a slave of God. 
It's good to do all that you can to eradicate your own will and to live only for the will and word of the master. In 2 Corinthians 5.15 it says, He, Jesus, died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Jesus and his good news unashamedly asks us for nothing less than 100% obedience. He's given his life for us and laid it down. He's given us so many blessings and benefits. But part of the deal is we give him everything too. So why don't you reflect on that as we close now. What is it you need to still lay down and give God?